0: So as super set, I will talk about a bit precision studies of the Higgs at the LHC. So what I have here on my first slide is one of the Higgs events, where the Higgs decays into two muons and two leptons, sort of one of the very clean signatures, so one of the beautiful events. On the other hand, you also see that things are not that simple. They are complicated because you have often a huge amount of collisions that happen at the same time. So understanding this physics. interesting but also very challenging. Now this is one of the images of the Atlas detector, one of the detectors that people here really help building and uh, now exploiting. So as one told you already what we have now is the standard model of particle physics and this has been a remarkably successful theory in describing essentially everything that we see in all collider experiments that we have built on Earth so far. Yet, we really know that it is not a fundamental theory. It has some theoretical issues, uh, and I will uh, discuss some of them. But mostly, really, there are important unexplained phenomena. For instance, gravity does not fit in the standard model, the amount of matter meta- anti- symmetry that, that we observe, or uh, the presence of dark matter, dark energy, that Uli will talk about later. Now, the LHC experiment was designed to explain uh, essentially the origin of mass uh, in the standard model through the Higgs mechanism, what goes under the name of electroweak symmetry breaking, and to find physics beyond the standard model. As you all know, the Higgs has been discovered, in fact, while uh, no new physics has been seen. Now, these two are statements that you probably heard already many times, also in Juan's talk. And what uh, I would like to start with this talk is really addressing what this really means. So... What is really the problem with particles having a mass in the standard model? Why is there a problem? And how does the Higgs mechanism solve really this problem? And also, why do we believe that the LHC is exploring the right energy scale to really find a new physics? So to do this, uh, I will take now a big step back and forgive me for, for being a little bit maybe simplistic here. But we all know here that there is a duality in quantum field theories. So to every, wave, to every particle, we associate a duality between waves and particles. So to the electromagnetic wave, we associate a particle that we call the photon. And when the photon or this wave propagates so in one direction, we know that it, this has two physical polarization states. This is, if you want, uh, just uh, an empirical fact. It starts as an empirical fact uh, that there is no longitudinal polarization. Now, it is, uh, sounds like an accidental fact, so, but it's, uh, it has some deep consequences. Why is, uh, why is that? If uh, this 3rd um, polarization existed uh, and you sit down and try to compute scattering amplitudes, uh, What you find is that uh, you find scattering amplitudes that are proportional to the energy at which the scattering happens. So what this means is that if you perform the scattering at very high energies, you will find at some point probabilities that are larger than 1. Now this is of course not physical. Probabilities can't be larger than 1. What this is telling you is that your field theory is breaking down at some higher energies. Now in quantum electrodynamics this does not happen. We know there is no fair polarization, and this is related to a symmetry of the theory that we call gauge symmetry. So the gauge symmetry, if you want, acts like a filter. It filters away this longitudinal polarization, and you're left with the physical photon in quantum electrodynamics. So the gauge symmetry, then, is really relate- is really crucial to, related to sort of keeping your theory sensible when you go to high energies. The other thing that everybody here knows very well is that uh, when you look at the light propagating, the speed of light is the same in any reference frame. So it doesn't matter if you're not moving, if you're moving slowly or faster, you always see the same speed of light. But this is not the, the, the case, of course, for objects that have a mass. When a massive particle propagates, the speed it has is different according to your reference frame. But in particular, what you can always do is to find the reference frame where your particle is not moving anymore. Now in this reference frame, uh, there is no distinction anymore between uh, transverse and longitudinal polarizations, right? uh, because this would break the rotational symmetry of your theory. So the gauge trick that works nicely for photons that are massless does not work as soon as your particles have a mass. On the other hand, uh, we heard from one, and we know very well from many experiments now, that uh, the electroweak interactions are mediated by particles that do have a mass, the W and the Z bosons. And the masses break uh, this electroweak symmetry, so the theory breaks down at high energies. That's the problem. And then you can uh, sit down and look at what energy does this happen, at what energies would you find the probabilities that become larger than one. And the energy at which this happens is about 1 TeV. So, this is the energy scale approached by the LHC. And this is why, really, the LHC was designed to sort of investigate, to test uh, this mass generation. So, how do particles have mass in the standard model? But at the same time, how do we keep the theory sensible when we go to these energy scales? So, the most popular solution is what goes under the name of Higgs mechanism or electroweak symmetry breaking. So when you say that the electric symmetry is spontaneously broken, so spontaneous symmetry breaking means essentially a very simple thing, that you have equations that do have a symmetry, for instance, some rotational symmetry. But then once you pick a solution to this, uh, the solution, the most energetic, jetically uh, convenient solution has, uh, breaks uh, this rotational symmetry. So your laws of physics still have the symmetry, but the solutions do not. And something that is typical of spontaneous symmetry breaking is that if you have laws that are invariant under some symmetries, you can have solutions that do not respect this symmetry. For instance, you have a particle that is more massive than the other one as long as uh, also the other solution is allowed and exists. So, right. so typical in general of spontaneous symmetry breaking is having a sort of degenerate solutions. Right. So here, you see, for instance, here, all the solutions are sort of degenerate. And these are sort of called uh, zero energy excitations. So uh, essentially, because moving around this circle costs no energy, what this corresponds with is the presence of a massless particle, what goes under the name of massless Goldstone Boson. And now you have sort of uh, a second problem that we don't observe physically. This uh, Goldstone Boson is not there. So the Higgs mechanism essentially solves these two problems. uh, What you do is you absorb this degree of freedom from the massless, uh, from the Goldstone boson, into a massive particle. So from two polarizations you get uh, these three physical polarizations. So in a way, one way to think about this, a bit naïve, is that the Higgs field is sort of like, uh, instead of having a vacuum, a real vacuum, you have a Higgs field vacuum. And when particles propagate to this vacuum, they sort of interact with the Higgs field. So the Higgs slows them down. They have a speed that is lower than the speed of light, meaning they have a mass. So then in this simple picture, the mass that particles have are always proportional to the amount of interaction they have with the Higgs boson. So the problem was that. If you have massive particles you have gauge invariance and everything is fine, but with massive particles you have unitarity violations. So the way the Higgs mechanism works in a way is that at small energies, meaning large distances, you feel the effect of this medium, so you have massive uh, particles. But once you go to large energies you don't feel this anymore and so you have no problems with unitarity violations. So of course, once you have a field, you also have excitations of this field. So you know that there must be also a Higgs boson associated to this. And again, for the Higgs boson, like for all other particles, the Higgs interacts with itself. So the Higgs also has a mass that is proportional to the coupling of the Higgs to itself. Right. So the nice thing about this Higgs mechanism in the standard model is it's really very testable. So once uh, you find the Higgs, once you know the mass of the Higgs, you know everything else. So you can predict uh, all other couplings and masses. Um, and now, so before the discovery, we really didn't know whether the Higgs is there. It has been an open question for really many years. And it was uh, believed to be extremely hard to figure out. And uh, the reason is that uh, the way you see the Higgs uh, is by looking at some distribution. For instance, this could be some uh, energy spectrum or invariant uh, mass distribution of two photons when the Higgs decays to, to two photons. And what you see, you have a huge uh, diphoton background and a really little bump here, something <coughs> like this. So of course, uh, once you collect data, data are not perfect. This is how data look like. So it's very difficult to discriminate between these two possibilities. So this is why really the LHC, as one described earlier, really needed to collect a huge amount of data to discover this, uh, the Higgs. So let me tell you just briefly the history of this discovery, which I think is sort of an amazing, uh, it's quite amazing because people really thought that it would take much longer than it did. But what happened already in 2011, the LHC experiment was able to sort of exclude (coughs) just some mass Regions for the Higgs boson, so let me explain you a little bit this plot. What is shown in this plot, you have a um, green band and a yellow band. These are different confidence levels that you have, and you have a um, black line here that is what you ex- uh, what what you expect and another line here that is what you observe so once this uh, green band moves below this uh, red line you are allowed to, you are excluding cross sections so if the green band would be here then you, are, you can exclude something like two or ten times the standard molecular section but once you're below here then you can exclude the Higgs boson with some given mass and this is what happened here and once these points somehow go outside these bands then you sort of have a hint that something is there because what you're observing is different from what you would expect under the hypothesis that there is no Higgs. So with the first inverse femtoban, so heavier higgs boson states could be excluded and then really shortly afterwards you see all this band goes down so you could exclude much more but then you started having a hint of something of a lighter higgs boson at around 127 125 so this is shown here you can look at the probability that this so you see this thing here the probability that this is in fact the higgs boson And all these results were presented at the conferences. People were really excited at the time. It was really an exciting time because before those conferences, uh, people that were not working in these collaborations did really not know what would happen, right? What uh, would be presented. So it was really very exciting. And then uh, you'll know in the 4th of July 2012, uh, the evidence of a new boson was presented. Uh, And this is, for instance, uh, shown. this is the plot I was telling you before. This is the invariant mass spectrum of uh, diphotons, the Higgs decays to two photons. And you see really this peak here, a clear peak. Uh, Or also in the invariant mass of four leptons, uh, when the Higgs decays to two z, they decay into four leptons. This is the peak here. And this is the standard model z peak that you have. So this was one new boson. It was unclear what it is. Uh, Well, people uh, believed, of course, it's a standard model. But then uh, a few months later, it was, in fact, uh, identified as a standard model, um, Higgs. Uh, And how do you do that? Well, I told you uh, the standard model is very predictive. You know that masses and couplings have to be proportional to the Higgs mass. Uh, so in this plot here for instance you show this pattern where you see the mass of the particle and the coupling of the particle to the Higgs pose and everything is really aligned it's uh, on a straight line huh? the other thing that you can look at for instance is the spin or the parity of this object huh? now, From the fact that the Higgs decays into two photons, you already know it can't have spin 1, but it could have spin 2. But here you see that this is the hypothesis of spin 0, and this is spin 2. So data really favored immediately spin 2. And this is, again, sort of a a summary plot where you look at fermionic versus bosonic couplings. So Higgs... uh, coupling to vector bosons, so the Higgs coupling to fermions. And where is this 1, 1 is the standard model hypothesis. So you, you see that everything is really compatible, still with uh, large errors, but compatible with being a Higgs boson. And that's why then the Nobel Prize was awarded really just one year after the discovery. So what we have now are sort of what we call legacy results from Run 1. So essentially all data have already been analyzed in all possible ways. And okay, I don't want to expect you to follow all this, but really, the, this has been studied in all possible ways in all channels that we know of. And I will discuss this a little bit later. Let me stress that, at least for me, these three years have been really remarkably intense and very exciting, right? So here you see, this is Fabiola Genotti, who was the spokesperson of uh, Atlas, the Atlas collaboration at the time, and will become the of, uh, director general of CERN next year when she announces uh, the evidence for the Higgs boson. And this is, I don't know if you heard about it, this is a movie that sort of tells the story from uh, some point of view. <laughs> Now, having found the Higgs is, of course, it's something really very positive, very satisfying. On the other hand, it also leaves some open questions and some open problems. One is the fact that the Higgs mass, the Higgs being a scalar, is not protected by any symmetry. So the Higgs mass can essentially get the corrections, quantum corrections, from vacuum fluctuations. And because there is no symmetry to protect this, the mass of the Higgs can be <coughs> The corrections can be arbitrarily large. So it should be proportional to the maximum allowed energy that you have, so something like the Planck mass. So the fact that we observe a very light Higgs then um, requires high fine tuning up to really many digits or some new physics. So to take an analogy, if you think about like thermal fluctuations, if you take a particle and put it in a thermal bath and wait long enough that everything thermalizes, you would expect that the red particle has about the average energy of all our blue particles, right? Well, what we observe is that our red particle, the Higgs, has really an energy that is much, much, much smaller than the blue particles. So per se, it's not inconsistent, but it's really hard to believe that something like this happens without there being a deep reason for that. So in this analogy, Uh, The reason, of course, could be that uh, red does does not acquire the energy of blue because red does not interact with blue. There is some screening mechanism so that red simply does not see the presence of blue. And this is essentially the same as uh, what happens in the Higgs case. So you could uh, say that, well, the mass of the Higgs is protected or screened by some new forces or new particles that we don't know about, uh, and that's why the mass is so light. uh. And there are, in fact, many new physics models that sort of try to explain why the Higgs mass is so light. And uh, and of course, all these models are all speculations. And all the experimental data can sort of discriminate between uh, different models and constrain different models. So where are we now? The LHC has been looking for particles predicted in these models. One of the most... Uh, popular class of models are su- supersymmetric models. And what you see here are sort of plots. Again, I don't expect you to follow what is written here. But what you see are bounds on the masses that are predicted in these models. And very roughly, the number to keep in mind is that the LHC can probably around 1 TV energy scale for these objects. So particles have to be heavier than, than some scale. Otherwise, we would have seen them already. And for more exotic models, these bounds are even stronger, about maybe 2 TV or so. So this is what the LHC could do so far. It could constrain, it could exclude a lot of models, but not really see anything uh, yet. Now, what will happen next? Uh, As one told you, a run 2 is about to start (coughs) this summer. It will have essentially twice the energy that the previous run had, and also much uh, higher luminosity. On the other hand, it is true that the factor 2 in energy is not that much. So one should keep in the I mean, uh, take into account the possibility that even in RAN 2 we will not see the production of new states directly, simply because the energy is not enough. Maybe you would need 30 TV or 100. So one of the focus of the RAN 2 will also be indirect searches and precision tests. There is an indirect searches and precision tests help in this case, when, when the energy is, because for direct searches you always have to have the right energy to produce a state directly. For indirect searches uh, through uh, virtual loops, uh, so you can you're sensitive to the presence of particles without producing them directly. This is the same as, for instance, what happened with the top. The top was discovered uh, at the Tevatron, but uh, there was already evidence from LEP that the top should be there, right? From uh, loop correction, simply. So one of the sectors that has not been investigated much yet is, of course, the Higgs sector, right? uh, and I, uh, as I told you, this is particularly interesting because everything is predicted in the standard model. Um, so to do this uh, prestige, indirect searches and precision tests, what you need, of course, is uh, the most accurate measurements, but also very precise theory predictions. Uh, and again, this is different from sort of direct searches. So in the Higgs uh, Digest invariant mass spectrum that I showed you, you really didn't need any fear at all to see a bump, right? You collect enough data and there is a bump. That's all. But when you talk about indirect uh, searches, you really have to control all your normalization, all your cross sections precisely if you want to say that the cross section is a little bit larger than what you expect. That's why for this type of searches, theoretical predictions are really more important. Now, how do we do theoretical predictions? So, as one said already, everything <coughs> is based on the fact that when you go to high energies, uh, your coupling constants, so the way particles interact, the coupling constants are small. So, all you do are perturbative expansions uh, in the coupling constants. So, for instance, if you want to compute any cross section, uh, you compute it at lowest order, and then you can compute uh, corrections to it that are essentially expansions in this constant. In QCD, so for the strong interaction, the coupling constant is around 0.1. So when you compute what we call a next to leading order correction, you can expect something of the order of a 10% correction. Next to next to leading order, so alpha squared, something of the order of 1%. This is a bit naive, I will show you. For the electroweak interaction, the coupling is of the order of 1%. So when you do a next to leading order calculation, you, you could have already very good precision the other thing to keep in mind is that uh, when your measurement is very inclusive this works nicely but once your measurement is less inclusive uh, typically when you're sensitive to two different energy scales for instance the hard scattering of the process and the softer scale uh, what happens is that in your cross section you will have large logs of the ratio of these two scales so when the logs are large uh, they compensate the fact that the coupling is small. So you have to change the way you do this expansion and sort of talk about the resummed calculations. And you talk then about leading log next to leading logs and so on. Different, these are essentially different ways of doing perturbative expansions always. Now, when we go back to the Higgs at the LHC, what this graph shows is how the Higgs is actually produced, the different production modes, as a function of the Higgs mass here. So we are, in fact, about here, right? So you see that by by far the dominant production mode uh, is gluon fusion to Higgs production. So you have two gluons coming from your proton uh, and through a top loop uh, they produce a Higgs. So this is a process that is loop-induced already. So the gluons don't couple uh, to the Higgs because the gluons are massless, but the top has a very large mass. So even if this is loop-induced, this is the dominant process. Then you have other processes like vector boson fusion production where you have two bosons that come from each from a proton, together they build a Higgs eh, in the final state, or processes where the Higgs is radiated from the bosons, eh? or for instance Higgs uh, produced associated with Tt bar. Now here, the coupling is also very large, the Higgs to tt bar coupling. On the other hand, here, you pay a price because you have to produce also two tops in the final state. So you need a lot more energy to produce this. That's why this is somehow much smaller than this process here. So these are the ways the Higgs can be produced at LHC. And the other thing to keep in mind is that we never really see the Higgs because the Higgs has a very... Decays essentially immediately, propagates a few femtometers and then decays. So you never see the Higgs. What you see are the decay modes of the Higgs. And this is again a plot showing the different branching ratios of the Higgs. And this is where we are, where we did discover the Higgs. And you see that somehow it's a very nice place, because if the Higgs had been much heavier, essentially you would have seen only the Higgs decay into etc. That's all. You would have never been able to see those modes. And if the Higgs would have been much lighter, you would have seen essentially only BB bar, but never those uh, modes here. Right? While in the place where we are, we can essentially see all those decay modes. Look at, for instance, gamma gamma is in fact very small and was one of the discovery channels. And this is because the signature here is very clean. Huh? So we already could uh, essentially see all of these modes. And uh, this is something I said a bit already, but uh, this is where we are now in terms of precision studies of the Higgs. So you can look at cross-sections uh, for different, and uh, you can always look at the ratio to the prediction to- from the standard model. And you see that essentially there is no deviation. So this looks really like a Higgs boson. On the other hand, you see that these aerobars are still really quite large. Here there is a little uh, tension, but uh, not much. And this is the plot that I already showed once, but you see somehow this nice picture mass aligned with the coupling right now, there are two we now restart, and essentially we'll uh, redo these tests, uh, trying to decrease this aerobus as much as possible. Uh, that's. Uh, I mean. Now I uh, want to discuss only one of these uh, calculations. I mean, behind all these production modes, anti-K modes, there are difficult calculations. And I want to focus only one, which is the simplest one here. So Higgs product is simplest but dominant, where the Higgs is produced uh, via gluon fusion. So this is the lowest order diagram. It's loop-induced. And we can even forget about the decay of the Higgs. One nice thing about the Higgs is that being a scalar, you can always forget about the decay and include it later. For for instance, vector bosons, you can't do it. So here, let's focus only on the production. This is loop-induced. This makes things difficult. So what people have been doing in the past uh, is to go into sort of an effective limit, in the limit where the top is very heavy. In that limit, uh, this loop essentially shrinks to a point. So we would say that at leading order, this is your production, where this is an effective vertex now. And then once you are in this limit, you can do loop corrections to this. So if you talk about next to next to leading order, what you do is you have diagrams, for instance, where you have two gluons exchange like this, where you have one loop and one real gluon or two real gluons. So these are called virtual gluons, this is real. Right. And this calculation was done already 12, 13 years ago now. And this is uh, what comes out when we do this calculation. So let me explain a little bit this uh, plot. So as one said, and as everybody knows, uh, you, when you do QCD corrections, you have to renormalize uh, the QCD coupling. And this introduces a renormalization scale in the predictions. And typically, what we do is uh, we choose the renormalization scale uh, to a physical scale of the process. Uh, here, we are looking at Higgs production. So a natural choice is to fix it to the mass of the Higgs. Uh, in fact, in this plot, it's uh, for some reason which I can uh, explain, but it's shown to mass of a Higgs over 2. Once you fix a scale, uh, you try to what you can do is you can vary your renormalization scale. And conventionally, we always vary it by a factor two up and down, uh, and this gives you a bend. So this is now red right, is your leading order prediction. Here the central value. You vary the scale up and down by a factor two, and you get something like this type of band. Then you do an next leading order calculation, and what you see is that uh, you get this central value and this type of band here and the next to next leading order calculation, and you are up here. So what you see from this plot is, first of all, in the case of Higgs production, this procedure does not seem to work very well. So the way we sort of use, the way we estimate the fear uncertainty certainty here for the leading order completely fails to sort of tell you what is the size of the next-to-leading-order correction. So these two bands don't even overlap. These bands now overlap a little bit, but still the central value is really at the edge of this band. So it would have been much better if the blue band would have been here. So what this says you is, you're doing a perturbative expansion, but this is not converging very well. Your next-to-leading-order correction, I said naively could be 10 percent, here it's a factor two, and the next-to-next-to-leading-order that could be 1 percent very naively, here is in fact another 20-30 percent. And this is what makes things things really very difficult in the case of Higgs production. eh? So this is a picture that we had essentially a few years ago, till a few years ago. So, what people have been doing now is uh, so there are two ways in which you can proceed. You can either say, OK, I'll try to compute higher order terms approximately, doing this type of resummation. So, identifying if there is a large log and trying to resum those. Or something a little more brute force, uh, you compute the next term in this expansion, the N3LO term. And okay, can this be so difficult? You're expanding, you're computing the third order term in this expansion. Is it that difficult? Well, so some facts about these calculations. So I told you this involves <laughs> <laughs> real virtual interference diagrams and so on. If you count the diagrams, it's 100,000 interference diagrams that you have to compute. At the next to next leading order, you had 1,000. When you go to loop integrals and phase-space integrals, this is the number that you have to compute. So you have uh, integrals like this. So this cut means uh, this is the phase-space integration. These are the particles that are on shell in this calculation. So you have these integrals plus another uh, 68 millions and so on. <laughs> <laughs> and in comparison, this is the number that you have at next to next to leading order. And so the way these integrals are computed is uh, you write down the, the expression for the integral, and then you have some reduction mechanism. So the way you relate these integrals to a set of simple scalar master integrals. So right, this is the procedure. You find a way to reduce them to a set of simple integrals. And what happens here that this uh, set of simple integrals is about 1,000 master integrals of this type here. right? While at next to next to leading order, you have 20c, such 26 uh, such integrals so things are in fact really much more complicated and these calculations are possible because there are new technologies uh, which are used to to do these integrals in fact Uh, so this is one of the most up-to-date plots now of this This, is so this group uh, did not finish the calculation yet, but could do it in some approximation, in sort of a threshold expansion. So there is an approximate expression now for these n-cube calculations. And different groups now took their result and put it in uh, their calculation as well. And what this plot shows here, this is this one number, one simple number for the cross section. These are different groups. Uh. And uh, this is the old recommendation that we had essentially before this calculation. And this is how numbers change uh, from different groups. There are always two colors, uh, light blue and uh, dark blue. This corresponds to different choices of your normalization scale, mHicks over 2 or mHicks. Uh, even this is sort of debated. What uh, should one choose? Uh, but the most sort of striking thing I uh, think, about this plot uh, that if you look at what these people say they believe uh, that essentially uh, because we learn from uh, what happens at next to next to leading order what is important and what is not they sort of believe that they have a very precise number and a really very small level this group here of people on the other hand which are in fact those that did this calculation sort of claim that uh, This is still a partial result. Things can change a lot once they finish the calculation. So they claim that, in fact, uh, the central value should go down, and the uncertainty is really very large. So these are the things that are really now hotly debated. And uh, let me conclude by showing one of the slides that was presented uh, in January now, about essentially about these results. So the question is a little bit if you're wiser, when you try to learn from what you learned it next to next to leading order and you try to apply it at the NQ below, However, you're wiser if you admit that you don't have this full calculation yet, uh, and you should hence have a very conservative error bar. And these are the things that are really now a bit open and under discussion. So let me conclude now by saying we had fantastic data from Run 1, and I think uh, Run 2 will perform even better. There is a lot of expectation. It starts this summer. It will be very exciting. The Higgs discovery was really a milestone, it was a remarkable success. On the other hand, it leaves many open questions, uh, the hierarchy problem, things about naturalness, and so on. <laughs> now, RAN2 will focus on these precision studies, and as I said, I mean, precision studies, you can't go on just with uh, experimental data. You really need the theorists and experimentalists to work together. So what is shown here is, again, this is this Higgs cross-section working group. This is an image that I took from this uh, meeting in January, right, where theory and experiments go hand-in-hand together.